the boat rides we would take, the moonlight on the lake, the way we danced and hummed our favorite song, the things we did last summer, I'll remember all winter Good evening, good afternoon, happy summer to all our listeners out there. Welcome to the latest episode of Criterion Cast. This is a, continuing our Summer with Bergman series. Uh, you don't have to listen to them all the way through in order. This isn't a Netflix show or anything. You won't be too lost, but we may refer back occasionally to our last episode on Summer Interlude. Uh, we had a lot of fun recording that on such a great film, and hope you all enjoyed that as well. This time we're tackling the famous or infamous, depending on how you want to look at it, uh, Summer with Monica. Joining me, my name is Scott and I, joining me to discuss this are Eric Devins. Eric, how's it going? It's going well. Thanks for having me again. Thanks for coming aboard. Uh, David Blakesley. David, how are you? Great. Always a pleasure. And Trevor Barrett. Trevor, how's it going? I'm doing great. Great. That was really enthusiastic. All right. (laughs) Hope you can sustain that for the next hour. (laughs) Uh, This is spine number 614. It is... Uh, the 1953 film, uh, Summer with Monica, known in the States for a brief while as Monica's Story of a Bad Girl, which I'm sure we'll get into, but for all intents and purposes, this is Summer with Monica, which Criterion describes as such. Inspired by the earthy eroticism of Harriet Anderson and the first of her many roles for him, Ingmar Bergman had a major international breakthrough with this sensual and ultimately ravaging tale of young love. A girl and boy from working-class families in Stockholm run away from home to spend a secluded romantic summer at the beach, far away from parents and responsibilities. Inevitably, it is not long before the pair are forced to return to reality. The version initially released in the U.S. was re-edited by its distributor and is something more salacious, but the original Summer with Monica, presented here, is a work of stunning maturity and one of Bergman's most important films. I would definitely agree with the most important part, uh, and this is the thing with Bergman that we talked about in the last episode. Uh, you know, even a film like this, which I would rank... You know, comparatively low, I think, on his filmography. If I were to make it like a tier system, it'd probably be kind of a fourth or fifth out of, I think I came up with seven tiers for him. Uh, but I still totally love this film. I think it's the best of the, kind of the working class dramas that he made and kind of the culmination of that period before he kind of moved on to more introspective tales of people who were well off enough to be more introspective. Uh, and watching it again, I think there's a lot of strengths that kind of point to it some skills he would develop later and some kind of traits he would develop later, as well as, like I said, kind of capping off uh, that early initial period of his uh, filmography. Uh, but uh, let's see, who will I start with? Trevor, you're the most excited. Trevor, how do you feel about Summer with Monica? Oh, I, I really like this movie, though I probably feel about the same way as you do, uh, where it's not my favorite Bergman by any means. It's not in my top tier and probably not in my second tier. Um, but it's probably in my third tier, and it's my least favorite of the three that we'll be discussing this summer. But boy, it's still very powerful. Um, there's still so much going on in it that I'm just I'm really excited to chat with you guys because it took me a while to come around to this film. Uh, I remember the first time I watched it, thinking, "Okay, um, that's a pretty awful, <laughs> awful story about this this girl who doesn't seem to have any control over her life and seems to just be deliberately sabotaging and um, irresponsible." But uh, you know, it didn't take me too much time to start to to kind of drift back to it and want to you know capture a little bit more. And it's certainly grown in my estimation over the years as I've rewatched it because it's so much more complex than that. And um, yeah, so one of uh, one of my uh, favorite early Bergmans, uh, but um, you know, just really anxious to to get into it. Uh, David, I was hoping to find a Criterion Reflections entry from you on this title, but I see it uh, came too late in the release schedule for you to get to it. Uh, so I will find out now. How do you feel about this film? Well, I will shed no tears for this film. <laughs> I will. I will just say, uh, you know, I. I love this film. I, you know, right now I'm I'm kind of all enraptured in it, just kind of absorbed and lost in its world. But this definitely does feel like Bergman's, you know, raising the bar uh, as he will go on to do uh, several more times over the course of his career. But yeah, the, yeah, to me this is just a whole another level of of achievement for him uh, as he's you know landed on an actress, uh, you know, Harry, yeah, Harriet Anderson that that has kind of you know, given him 
uh, you know, Maj Britt Nelson in, in uh, Summer Interlude was, was, was excellent. But, but here he's, he's really tapping deep into a, a woman's psyche uh, with very complex characterization. Uh, he's, he's kind of landed on, on a woman who can even elevate his own game in terms of what she portrays on screen and takes a story that may be seen a little, a little bit pedestrian, a little bit, you know, uh, a twice-told tale, uh, but makes it something very memorable, very evocative uh, with both the filmmaking technique and just the performances and the, the landscape. So uh, there's a lot to love about this film. I, I, I guess I don't need feel the need to compare it to whether it's better or worse than. I just think this is, this is a pretty uh, spectacular film on its own terms, uh, one that having watched it a couple times over the last couple days, uh, it really you know, is very exciting, very invigorating, and I, I, yeah, I have a lot to say about it. But uh, I'll just kind of late make that as my introductory comment. Well, you got into one of the things I wanted to hit first off, uh, which is Harriet Anderson's performance, and so I'll uh, ask Arik Devins in a second how he feels about that. Give him time to prepare, and you can kind of fold in Arik your general thoughts on the film. But for me, uh, Harriet Anderson is the greatest actress who ever worked with Bergman. I think she really. Uh, gets a lot of the kind of primal instincts that are kind of uh, flourishing underneath a lot of Bergman's characters and found a way to express them without just coming off as well, ridiculous, frankly. Uh, and she didn't think of herself as an intellectual actress, and she mentions in the interview, uh, and it really shows in this performance and all her many others. I think in this film, you know, she really lets herself be uh, like kind of like physically dirty and nasty in her general descent as they go further and further into the wilderness and. She really is unafraid and uninhibited, even by Bergman's standards, which is considerable given the great great kind of raw performances he yields. Uh, Arik, I would imagine you're generally on the same boat and liking Harriet Anderson's performance. Do you have any further thoughts on her or your general thoughts on the film itself? <laughs> I do like Harriet Anderson's performance. I think uh, if I were to rank my, my Bergman women, B.B. Uh, Anderson would come before Harriet Anderson. But um, So we may, may come to blows over that. I don't know. But, um, but no, I think Harriet is wonderful. Um, in general with this film, I would say that I probably am somewhere between... I'm definitely not as far as where David is. I, I, I think this was very interesting because... When, the, when I first watched it, um, I was a little bored, to be honest with you, and and I, I wasn't really. I don't know if it was because I've been watching a lot of the Louis Mal documentary set. Maybe I just wasn't in the in the right wavelength for this film the first time I, I watched it. But I wasn't I wasn't as immediately hooked as I was with with Summer Interlude. Um, but when I finished the film, I couldn't stop thinking about it. Like it was so many, I have a lot to say about this film as well. And, and so many of the themes and so many questions that I had and so many thoughts that I had, and I just kept thinking about it. And so uh, I watched it again and, 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 and when watching it again, I was like, okay, I'm in the right mood. I'm in the right headspace now. And then I, I really, really liked it. So I think um, it is a, a great film. I would agree with you, Scott, that it's probably some not, certainly not top tier Bergman. I don't know what tier it would be. And I haven't done that exercise. That sounds awesome. You should put that list somewhere, but um, <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's on some scale below that. And, I, but I also do see how this is definitely a, 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 con a turning point uh, in terms of his uh, wanting to uh, portray, to talk about women's uh, journeys as opposed to men's, although probably a subject we'll get into given the nature of the film. Um, but yeah, definitely, uh, and I would agree, like I said, with uh, that, that Harriet Anderson goes to a, a very interesting place in terms of her willingness to to evolve as the summer goes on and, and get dirty, as you said, uh, in a physical sense. Um, and, and, and I think that the description in the Criterion bio of an earthy eroticism is, is extremely accurate for her portrayal in this film yeah she really portrays that strongly even in her just kind of a bit part in some miles of a summer night i mean she is sexy and um earthy in that too so it's just she she's tremendous i'll i'll back you up scott i think she's the best um there is uh, but we'll come to that a little later we'll, we'll get into our fight a little later i guess with arc <laughs> oh it's not much of a fight i'll say in terms of uh, attractiveness level i am mad for bb anderson uh but oh my God. <laughs> in terms of uh, expressive quality I, I always go with harriet um well that's fair Mark, you mentioned uh, as long as you mentioned it i got to get into my kind of one ma minor beef with this film which is i feel like it kind of is maybe too much from a male perspective you know this guy harry comes off as a very reasonable very uh passionate guy who's just kind of done in by this horrible woman 
Uh, I think uh, Monica has enough kind of tones to her to make her a dynamic enough character that it's not like this just horrible bitch that done him wrong. But uh, that has always been kind of a nagging issue for me in this film. Did any of you feel that way at any point? And have you oh, maybe worked I... past it? I vigorously oppose the idea All right. that she's this horrible <laughs> bitch. No, I think she's a she's a force of nature, and she's a a young woman who, absolutely, by all the measurements of kind of bourgeois mainstream society, is just this little you know village slut, this little tramp, this little floozy that you know is kind of uh, out there for the taken. But um, there's there's something much more vital going on here, and yeah, she is incredibly irresponsible and and you know her maternal instinct is is kind of blotto when it comes time to you know kind of do her duty and and certainly i i can identify and understand where people would just think oh what a you know what a bad girl as the american subtitle kind of tagged her but that's that's the thing this this goes beyond just you know she done him wrong and oh poor harry you know he kind of gave his heart this naive idealistic uh you know sort of uh daydreamer of a young man got tangled up with a girl who uh was was kind of in some ways way out of his league uh but i i think just to sort of leave it there and and to stop with that verdict is is really doing the, the character in an injustice uh it's missing bergman's point and Harriet Anderson's point in her performance. And I think it's also just kind of missing something much more, oh, I don't know, maybe maybe it's more difficult to quantify or articulate, but just that uh, there are women who, you know, have to live their life with this reputation that's pretty disgraced and dishonorable. And 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 partly it's just because of the, the, the patriarchy and, and just the other aspects of the society that's been sort of constructed around them that they've been born into uh where their life force their their vitality their autonomy their individuality is just really subsumed because they're never really given the much dignity or respect to begin with so uh you know uh monica's circumstances of life are are pretty difficult and she never really had a, a fighting chance and you know you can extrapolate from the outcome of the story that her life is not going to be a bed of roses. It's going to be difficult, and there's going to be pain and anguish and heartbreak. But uh, she's still kind of unvanquished, and I kind of like that about her, and I like that about the story, that it doesn't tack on a moralizing ending. So, you know, maybe we're <laughs> jumping to the conclusion. But but anyways, that's that's kind of my my bond with the Monica character. And even, even though I can identify with Harry and, and recognize, you know, the burden that he's been left with and his own disappointment uh there's just something really powerful about how this whole thing is portrayed and it's uh it's a tale that you know feels maybe a little bit dated of its time but i don't think the storyline or the dynamics are completely beyond us either i think these things are still happening today well they do such a good job of kind of building uh, Monica's home life, you know, it, it, you really feel at every turn that she's just surrounded by people who want something from her, you know, at work, people are constantly grabbing her, if not like full on assaulting her. And at home, you know, she sleeps in the kitchen, as far as we can tell, it's a one room apartment with what, at least three other kids and her parents, a drunk father who beats her. And, you know, she has no space of her own. So it's no wonder that she rushes off and, you know, forms a, this own space inside this boat. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of with David where I I feel a lot more empathy for her than I did the first time around um, because, you know, there's there's no place for her. Like you just said, Scott, her world is incredibly stifling. What is someone like Monica supposed to do? Um, there, she, she's not one who can just go out and uh, become independent and get a job. She, you know, she is expected to to become harry's uh wife and and you know that's kind of the role that's going to be out there for her um she does try to avoid the consequences of her choices for sure but it's still easy to to look at her and 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 go what would we have her do you know what what, what would i do in that situation well i, I know what i would do I'm, I'm much more of a harry kind of guy <laughs> you know I, I i am the conventional person and i and i i find stability in that um but it's one of those things where she is trying to escape from that life. And what she ends up doing actually 
has the potential to bring her into even more captivity if you want to look at it that way. I mean, here she is uh, toward the end of the film, an 18-year-old mom, and that's going to be it. You know, they're not going to be happy with each other for a long time, if ever. Um, you know, it, it might not be such a bad thing uh, what ends up happening to them necessarily. Um, it's But it's kind of hard to talk about all that because... It, it all is kind of terrible there at the end. You know, they they both have to move on with their life and deal with deal with what's going to to happen because of where they've where they've been during this uh, little summer of you know love and lust. But there's there's just I, I love that Bergman is is kind of as David said leaving it out there for us. I do think that it it could look like there's a nice moral on the end of the film just because of Harry's position. I mean, it, it does almost look like hey, don't don't end up with this girl <laughs> you know don't don't sleep around don't um you know be careful the consequences of young love can be can be uh you know young parenthood and and uh going out and having to get a job and not sleeping anymore at night you know that that dream and that freedom that you you yearned for can really come crashing down if you live it too much to the fullest uh but it's i mean monica is such an interesting character here because there really isn't much of a world for her, and, and maybe we'll get into it later, but that shot, that kind of famous shot that Godard talks about uh, where she's looking toward the camera, kind of making her decision, you know, like, what what am I going to do here? You know, she's aware. She, is, she isn't just a, a completely irresponsible person. She is aware of what... Um, of what she's doing and of the consequences. And she seems a little bit terrified um, because there is something, there's some need there that she has for Harry and for that life. But, um, but all that stability, she, she recognizes the problems that come with it. And it's, it's pretty powerful. Uh, so I think uh, Trevor brings up an, an excellent point, uh, a bunch of excellent points, but one in particular is that she's 18 years old. And I think, it's something we need to remember is that she's 18, he's 19. They are being sort of railroaded into this marriage because, um, because of the, the child. And, you know, they even have to go and get like a special dispensation to get married, you know, and all this stuff. But so I think, uh, when I said in my opening statement that, that I couldn't stop thinking about the film, this is definitely the central issue that I was considering, which is to my, my way of thinking about it initially was whose story is this? Who is the main character of this film? Is it Harry's story? Because conventionally it feels like it's Harry's story. And at the end, you're like, oh my God, what a terrible person to do that. Leave him with this baby and da 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 da. But the more I thought about it, um, and in reading some of um, the thoughts about it from people who've been thinking about it a lot longer than me, um, I do think it's more Monica's story. And it kind of makes it kind of makes the title interesting. But I think, you know, we see her, as, as has been said, you know, her home life was pretty tragic um, and all this stuff. And I, I think uh, the thought that I came to, and I don't know if this is, if this is going to make sense to anyone but me, but um, I, I sort of came to the conclusion that, that this is sort of a commentary on the manic pixie dream girl trope. And that, um, I had, I had the same thought, what, just to let you know. Oh, really? So oh, yeah. Awesome. Well, so, and uh, even the gr- movie they watch in the theater is titled dream girl, you know? It, yeah, yeah, totally. So, so, and specifically the point I found from that from in this was that, you know, uh, the manic pixie dream girl as a concept is, is fun and great. Uh, but after the end of garden state or whatever, uh, she's still, you know, wants to do her thing and is a free spirit and wants to be free. And your boring guy, Harry, she has no interest in that life, right? She, she wanted the life that they went out and led. She approached him saying, we should just go travel and things like that. So he wants this, you know, normal life and all this stuff. And he's going to do the right thing. And he's going to settle down. And he sees we have a child now. We have to do this and that. And that's just not what she's interested in. If, if he was like, okay, you, me, and the child are going to go travel around and be goofy and go dancing and, and buy dresses and stuff, I think she'd probably stay with him. Um, but, you know, she's not interested in, in, in a sort of uh, normcore, you know, boring nine to five type life. And that's okay. Um, but it, it sucks for him, but he, as I think Trevor said, or maybe it was David, I'm sorry, um, got involved with someone who was, uh, out of his league, not only in like some sort of attractiveness, coolness thing, but also just, they did not have 
in any way matching goals. And so he was, he would have been much better off finding someone who yearned for a, you know, sort of stable house with a sewing machine and things like that. And he came from a much more sort of boring middle-class background. I mean, his mom died, but he's was looked like a pretty stable situation with his dad. And he just, you know, he ran to this force of nature and he was not uh, prepared to, de- to deal with that. So I don't sort of blame her at all. I think it's the inevitable consequence of, of the situation they found themselves in. Yeah, I didn't mean to come out so against her. I'm sorry if I expressed myself that way. I definitely <laughs> You're the worst, Scott. <laughs> I definitely always empathize with her to a great deal, but I didn't really fully consider it from a lot of the angles you guys presented. And uh, I'm happy to say I, I feel like you've uh, opened up new avenues to this film with me, and I think I like it all, all the more even, what, 20 minutes into this episode. So we're off yeah, to well, a good I start. Think, <laughs> right. I think, I think Harry was given her... The, the best that he could because this is kind of how he was raised this is his aspiration and he thinks you know I, I i love this woman she's she's awesome she's wonderful she's exciting but but you're mm-hmm. right he he hasn't really tapped fully or doesn't quite understand how untamable she really is you know well, and, their, and their so, reason oh sorry yeah. <laughs> well well and i i guess the, the the final scenes here and then just kind of where he's left is like I think he he treasures this memory. He he accepts this obligation of a baby, and he calls her Monica. Yeah, right, right. He calls the baby Monica. It's him recognizing that he couldn't keep this thing, but that he got something from it. Yeah, exactly. There's a, something right. really exquisite in that memory, and there's a love that yeah. really, that really will last years, and and will perhaps never fully be requited, but it's still there, and it's still part of who he is now, and that's not a bad thing. Well, and it speaks to a very like human thing of wanting to give somebody everything you have, but if like what you have to give is the wrong thing for them, it, it creates like natural tension. I've definitely experienced that. I'm sure you guys have as well. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's oh, absolutely, that's definitely yeah. a big part of it because even his reasons for wanting to get away from it all are very different from hers. He he's having a bad day at work, you know, he's feeling a little put upon there. Uh, but he's comfortable. His, you know, he he abandons his dad for goodness' sake. He 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 yeah. isn't. He he's he's a, just a, in a different world than she was. Her reasons for getting out are pretty existential. I mean, she is getting just sucked dry. She's not developing. Um, her personality is getting completely stifled. Her her ability to get out there, and she sees these films that just you know there's a, a, a way of escape for her, and she v- gets very emotionally involved, and so she is she really is trying to escape to a new world. He just kind of wants a temporary, you know, vacation from it. And well, he's it, got this totally hot, sensational young woman. That well, and that's with. that. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's interesting when he has his little tiny flashback there at the end, uh, the, the scenes that he remembers with her still kind of objectify her. I don't think he ever completely understands her, uh, what, at least during the, the course of the film, because, you know, what does he think back on? Well, her kind of running nude mm-hmm. along the beach and then yep. him driving while she's lying out on the boat. And, you know, he doesn't remember her kind of primal side and just this this person kind of that's filled with life and personality bursting out. It's still very much for him just a, wow, that she was mine for, for a time. And the, the film I, is kind of subversive that way. I, I'm not sure Bergman is doing that on purpose. You know, because as as Arik was saying, he, it's kind of presented as if it's Harry's film, um, and as if he's kind of a little bit of a hero. It's very much in line with some of his earlier work, where it's about a boy who is developing and kind of gets uh, led astray for a little while, often by a woman, and then is kind of brought back in, you know, from that uh, potentially dangerous life. But yeah, in this one, he's a little older and wiser, and and life goes on. Yeah, but yeah, I think, there's yeah, the maturity Bergman there. May have been, right, but he may have been tangling with with, with themes and, and ideas that were even beyond his own uh, understanding. Uh, yeah, I think he's the getting there. Yes. I think he's getting there with this one. I think he's realizing, maybe only subconsciously, that there's you know this this stuff that I've been struggling with personally and in my films. There's more to it, and this film really kind of seems to open the door on all of that. Yeah. Yeah, and I think probably his relationship on the set with the real-life Harriet Anderson had a lot to do with that, right? Like, I, I, I don't know this for sure, although the, the supplementary material hinted at it a little bit, but that, that perhaps, you know, their romance was sort of changing his ideas for this film as the film was being made. Yeah. Right? And so... Some of that. I think he was at least a little bit aware of it, at least in retrospect upon completing it, because he has that uh, the the quote in the 
booklet that comes with this, the kind of interview he did with himself upon release where he says, I did not make Monica, you know, uh, Fogelstrom, the co-author of the story, conceived her in me. And then I went through a three-year gestation period, like the elephants. And the summer she was born <laughs> with a great hullabaloo. And yeah, I think you guys are right. You know, this was this is one of the things that I love about Bergman so much is that for all he's kind of understood and more in larger circles as kind of stately director, there's so many uncontrollable emotions and things that he's clearly wrestling with in the process of making the film and are left completely unresolved by the conclusion of them. And he's almost kind of amazed that they kind of emerge full, as fully formed as they do. And he talks about kind of later in his career in the sixties and stuff of realizing, you know, how well his films were going over and being surprised that, you know, the public could receive something like persona because they were these sort of uncontrollable emotions. And yeah, in addition, like we said, the kind of kicking off the period of female driven stories with this film, I think uh, this film definitely also kicks off that period of him just letting things kind of run wild. Yeah. And there is a wildness to this film. I mean, really the, the whole, the whole, you know, the plot, the storyline, uh, you know, this young couple that really do, they, they sort of steal a boat and they just disappear for a few months. I mean, that's a pretty kind of audacious, adventurous thing, you know, and, and, uh, I, you know, as that storyline sort of settled, I, I first watched this a couple of years ago and it's like, wow, this is, yeah, this, this feels kind of a, a little bit almost like reckless or adventurous, which is exactly, yeah, and again, doesn't fit with the common stereotype of the Bergman film, you know, the chamber dramas and all that kind of thing. But this is kind of, you know, leaving the city out into the, uh, Oceanside Wilderness, and I, I love that little boat journey that they take through Stockholm. These, these dissolves from kind of one bend of the river to the other until finally, all of a sudden, boom! They're out in the the shoreline and the rocks and the pounding waves and the sun, and uh, there's this journey from the kind of industrialized, kind of slightly smoggy, beaten down industrial neighborhoods where these two characters come from. And they just kind of emerge into this kind of primal, pristine, um, and somewhat isolated wilderness, which isn't terribly far. It's not like they sailed hundreds of miles or anything like that, but they just kind of got to a part of the shoreline that's kind of beyond development. It's just rocky and barren and a place where they can kind of pull up the boat and do their thing for a few months. <laughs> and, and there's no drama about, oh, what happened to Harry? What happened to Monica? Nobody's out looking for him. There's no, <laughs> there's no missing person to report or anything like that. They just kind of have this little splendid isolation where they just kind of get the freedom to, to you know, pursue this dream and, and have this idyllic moment for as long as they can make it last. Yeah, Bergman's sense of expressing place is really strong in this film, and it would only get stronger, of course, as the years go on. And the even from like the opening frames of this film, the oppression of the city is so apparent. The sound design and the way Gunnar Fisher lights it, it really feels like this is kind of bearing down on them. And then, like you said, when they uh, – boat away from the city it kind of feels like they're almost flying you know the sound design grows more idyllic and the sounds of the city kind of fade away and they really seem to be just floating in air and then when they take the boat ride back you can really feel the city kind of bearing down on them and i think that uh expression of place the way bergman can make very earthy environments seem kind of nightmarish or like heavenly really comes to fruition here. Well, and he does the same with um, their dress. Uh, I, I, you know, at the, the first time we see Monica, she's kind of tying on a scarf and trying to adjust her clothing. Like it's incredibly restrictive and it can kind of maybe appear sexy because she's doing it in this uh, unself-conscious manner, but she's, you know, she's constricted. They're wearing coats and they're, you know, pretty soon all of that comes off. And then as they go back to the city, they, they put the coats back on and, and um, it's kind of a, an interesting little play there that Bergman's just kind of hitting this, this notion from so many different angles. Yeah, the other thing about the um, boat thing that I thought was interesting was that remember that the boat that they take is is Harry's father's boat. So that's the level of thievery he's willing to do, right? We can live on my dad's boat. Like, it's not really stealing. But the level of thievery he's not willing to do is Harriet's level of... Uh, Harriet. Uh, Monica's level of thievery where she's stealing the roast and stuff. He just kind of is 
shaking the trees when they're uh, eventually they run out of food and go searching on some private land and and monica sort of climbs over into these people's cellar and steals something and almost gets caught and is going to be sent to the police and runs away and so and she's very mad at him when she gets back on the boat like oh well you know i'm pregnant and i need real food and you weren't going to go get this because he's just trying to find trees that will let apples drop so he's again he's that's sort of feeding into that idea that he's down to, to go on an adventure, but he's not really living her the life she's living. Well, right? even after he's not she, really in that place, right? Even after she's apprehended, I mean, she's not not only stealing from their cellar, but she's caught. She's like right in their living room, and they're trying yeah, to feed away. her. They're trying to placate <laughs> her, and she's just you know sticking out her tongue and pushing the stuff away. I mean, she's like, yeah. like I said, she's she's untamable. She is not going to sort of submit to any kind of uh, you know conventionality. And yeah. and when the when the coast is clear or you know, it's not all the way clear, she'll she'll grab that roast and just truck it for the woods, you know, and and uh, you know just gnawing at gnawing at the the meat right off the bone there and <laughs> letting her hair fl- hang down. I mean, she really does. She she kind of kind of almost goes like cave woman or something. And it's 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 an incredible performance. I mean, you think about which. I mean, I know she was not a, an established, you know, star at this point by any means, but I mean, show me a female performance from what 1953 that is this primal. It's it's really amazing. And again, uh, she well, she says uh, you know Scott already mentioned the interview of some 60 years later, and uh, she's you know kind of reflecting back that so she's just a woman who just went with her emotions and obviously those feelings just ran really deep for her to summon this kind of performance and to just inhabit it so convincingly. She's untamed and he is mostly tamed. Yeah. Right? Oh yeah. Yeah. He's, he's, he's ready to have a little fling, but of course once reality sets in and baby's on the way, okay, well we got to settle down now. You know, we've had our fun Time to study. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Going to, going to do school and going to provide for you eventually, and, but we got to pay our rent. Yeah, and then, you know, she doesn't even want to pay the rent. Right. <laughs> 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 yeah you can kind of see some like kind of chinks in their armor emerge i think the dancing scene is the one that really stood out to me where kind of the, the yes. fantasy that she's trying to make of this kind of idyllic movie kind of life where they're perfect and can just fall into automatic sync with one another but he can't dance at all <laughs> and so they have to kind of retreat to this other area where even in the distance even this very romantic shot with the sudden going down the music kind of floating over the lake you can still tell that he's having trouble kind of keeping up with her yeah he's not he's not the guy that she wanted him to be he was just the guy who said yes to her crazy plan or who was there when she needed the the crazy plan oh i told yeah she needed she needed a vehicle an accompaniment to to sort of make her break she she wasn't going to just launch out on her own and and again as a as a you know young woman a, a girl really uh just kind of looking for that exit you know he he was the guy who kind of launched her on her way but uh she did not feel any compulsion to make her first love you know her last love <laughs> and and uh, that's that's kind of a bitter pill to swallow for a guy like Harry who's decent and honorable and and has all the best intentions and i'm sure has a very genuine sense of Wow, she's she's wonderful. She's she's exciting. She's mysterious. I mean, she's all the things that a a man might love about a woman, but um, she's not going to be subservient to him, and he has to reckon with that, even even with a baby in his arms. And he wants that. Well, he's not wants doesn't want to live her life. Right? No, no. He he's yeah. he's been raised to you know land in a respectable position, and okay, well, there's a baby along the way, and there's a wife, and I've got some obligations that this isn't exactly the blueprint, but, you know, I'll, I'll make the best of it that I can. Um, Monica just has some different ideas or different impulses that she's following. Well, she might be able yeah. to see her creating the the kind of environment she herself grew up in. You know, no money, kids coming along, and she's just, she can't do that. Right, right. She senses the walls closing in. I mean, you know, there's one kid, and if they stay together, there's going to be another one in another year or so. And and can she? I mean, you know, that's again, you know, there's there's speculation and there's all of that. But you know, in her own conscience, does she want to create that same dynamic for her own children? Well, yeah. And there's that there's that scene where she or that moment where she says to him, "Oh, please don't hit me," right yeah. before he does <laughs> and so you know like she sees i think 
her her world closing in. She sees herself. I think that's very astute. She sees herself back in the same cot in the same tiny kitchen uh, where her mom wouldn't let her smoke because she was trying to deal with her sister. And I almost wonder if it didn't even occur to him to physically assault her until she mentioned it. He doesn't mm-hmm. seem to be kind of in that position, so to speak, until she brings it up. And it just kind of speaks to how bad they are for one another and how toxic their relationship is that they're encouraging kind of the worst of each other. Yeah, yeah. by that point, it's all it's all bad. Yeah, and this ethos that he's been born into, this middle-class respectability, does sort of have as this backstop. If the wife doesn't get in line, you know, you start hitting. And again, that's not Harry's first impulse. He's not, you know, by nature a violent, aggressive, you know, guy. But he goes there. I mean, he does. And and, and uh, that's that's just not acceptable to Monica and it, it, it ought not to be acceptable to any viewers although I'm not sure the, the majority of Bergman's audience maybe saw it that way I mean I'm, I'm sure there are probably a fair number of people who felt like whatever Monica got you know in terms of punishment or ridicule or or uh, you know condemnation was probably deserved because she was just so far out of line so I mean there's still that element of you know the the subjective bias of the viewer is going to interpret these characters you know however they will but uh yeah i mean there's there's just such a powerful complexity in, in all of this and even even you know upon the rewatch uh, you know you turn it around the second time and you sort of see how far advanced if you will in, in terms of relational intelligence monica is right from the get-go i mean from her first turn around and asking for Harry to light her cigarette and let's run away. I mean, she's already, you know, several steps ahead of the game and Harry is kind of, you know, just caught up in, in this, in this, you know, typhoon of emotions and, and sexual power that, that she, she's already possesses. I mean, you know, she's, you know, pretty clearly a woman who's experienced, you know, physically, carnally, sexually, and, and, and Harry is not, I mean, you know, he's the one who says to her, you're the only one. And she's the one who says to him, you're not like the other ones. You're so sweet. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that sums it up right there, you know. By the way, David, uh, I wish it were only true that back in Bergman's day in 53 that this was misunderstood. If you look at the comments on even on the Criterion website, which I think is probably a higher bar, some of the comments are from people who definitely are, are shall we say, anti-Monica. Yeah, I know, I know. It's 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 you know the work is not done, people. <laughs> no, not even not even close. No. Well, but it is kind of tough to to not be a little bit down on it and and look at oh, these these young people because we still see these situations today, and I love that we get a full half hour. You know, the film is basically ninety minutes, and we get a third of them, um, you know, in their homes and preparing to leave, and then a third of that out in the in the wild and then the next the last third is back home again i love that we get that full one third of the film to kind of fall in love with the situation as well and see it for some idealized um you know summertime together this interlude just Mm. like the last one but when they get back one of the first things that happens is they they get taken to the priest and is that harry's aunt who's talking to the priest yes yes i love that performance i love the way she reduces the whole thing just like we may do as well to yep he's 19 she's 18 and there's a (laughs) child coming and so we need to have this you know it's very much just uh a quick reduction of their whole experience to these statistics, which, you know, that I, we, we do still, I, I, I understand that because we, we, I see this around in my community. You know, I see people who are 16, 17, 18, kind of feeling like they're in this really deep, passionate relationship. And then a few years later, they are not where they want to be anymore, but they've made steps that are, that are, going to be very difficult and, and um, painful to to go back on whether they stay together um, which will be painful or when they split apart which is also very painful and and so it, I can definitely see the the idea here of being like well the, these stupid kids you know what were you thinking there's a reason that that people try to get stability and we were trying to get you in the job and you know we've got these steps laid out for you because it's to protect you from this pain, which, which they're definitely going to experience. But, um, you know, it's also, I I love that we get to see that reduction taking place and kind of look back in on ourselves and say, wait a minute, then wait, wait just a minute. Um, are, are we really supposed to judge them like this? Because 
as unsustainable as this relationship in that summer is, it is beautiful and you almost can't help but get the get the feeling that that's what life is supposed to be like, you know, <laughs> that it, that we all kind of give up some of that freedom and that joy um, for stability, which, you know, again, I, I am hairy. I, that's the, my life. I, I'm not um, saying we shouldn't do that or people who do that are, are dumb. I've, I've tried to be conscious in, in some of my choices, but, but at the same time, you know, you, you can look back on it, particularly that period, you know, after, after school's over and before your adulthood really begins, where it all seems kind of open and you are free for a few years potentially um, before it kind of starts closing in again and your life starts to narrow and, and realize that, wow, what, what they've done here takes some courage and, and, and it's kind of beautiful, even, even though it's, it's stupid, you know, (laughs) it's naive. Well, yeah, I mean, there, there is kind of just that, that, you know, Ozu like resignation, you know, life is painful <laughs> or isn't life sad, you know, whatever that, that famous quote is from the Tokyo story where, you know, these dilemmas present themselves like, yeah, there is this little taste of paradise, this, this, you know, uninhibited, carefree, uh, you know, incredible summer of, of just living in the sun and, and romping amongst the waves and, and leaving the world behind there, there's something, you know, uh, transcendent about all of that um and you know sadly it's it's not necessarily sustainable and you know of course there is a responsibility for taking care of the children that we create and raising them well and providing a good home and stability so you know monica's not completely you know innocent or absolved of, of her own you know lack of connection with her child or the you know, walking out on a man who really does deeply care for her and, and wants to provide for her. Uh, so, you know, there's no, there, you know, there's there's no uh, necessarily vindication. There's no explicit condemnation. There's just kind of a, a capturing of the fact that, yeah, life can really be messed up sometimes. And that's, and that's just what it is. And it's capturing this in a dramatic form. I like what I you think. what you say there, yeah, mm-hmm. because that, that's very much how I feel. Like that's where Bergman isn't judging; he's just kind of showing that hey, even all you people who look at them and say that's stupid, you've done things like that. Maybe not this particular thing, but you yourself have have experienced life, and um, you know, no one's completely protected from all this pain. It's going to come one way or the other, probably, um, regardless of the the pathway that you choose. And and this is one; it's just kind of a depiction of. This is this is the season of life, and um, there we are. <laughs> As a procedural question about the story, uh, and speaking of things that happened that were bad, there's that scene when they're uh, having their summer together, uh, where the the other guy uh, tries to burn their boat down and throw. Yeah, the there's that the that violent, aggressive side. I mean, the, the, you know, yeah. Harry was was that the guy? Was that the guy that she? Was that that same Lel guy from the beginning and the end? Yeah, yeah. I, be, I believe so. Oh, yeah, definitely. And and that's the, that's okay. another theme here is that you know while Harry is swept up in this rapture of of love and the erotic fulfillment, his life is also disrupted by you know, kind of brutal physical violence. violence. Yeah. I mean, he's beat up in like an alley. Times, oh yeah. yeah. He's, he takes some pretty, some, some pretty hard poundings there. The boat is vandalized. Their, their belongings are, are tossed overboard. I mean, it's, it's a pretty rough scene and that's, and that's the other sort of, you know, moral implication is that, you know, sometimes you can sort of tread your middle-class bourgeois life, you know, working, your job and, and you know, paying your dues and doing things the right way. And then you meet a girl like Monica and all of a sudden <laughs> life kind of becomes topsy-turvy both on, on the physical carnal side as well as all the complications because now you're, you're attaching yourself and your reputation to this woman who's kind of scandalous and kind of looked askance at and guys are going to give you a hard time because you've, uh, you know, you've, you've, You've taken one of the floozies off the market, so to speak, and you've kind of dragged your own name into the mud that she supposedly occupies. And so, yeah, that's just another sort of social commentary piece is that, you know, Harry had to pay a price, uh, even in terms of, you know, the, the integrity of his own body, his own physicality by, by getting into this relationship. Well, so the reason I asked specifically if it was the same guy, though, is because, um, uh, yeah, so he hits... Harry at the beginning, he beats up Harry there. It sort of makes it 
inevitable to me and important that he's the guy that she uh, cheats on Harry with at the end, because basically uh, she's in this like relationship at this point, which is pretty toxic. Like even before uh, that happens, Harry is sleeping. I don't know if you guys noticed this. Harry's sleeping on the cot in their, in their room together. Like, yeah, they're not sharing a bed at this point when they get back. Right. And so they're stuck in this, in this go nowhere relationship at this point where they're both miserable. They're obviously they want different things. All the things Scott was saying, how does she get out of that? How does she ensure that for sure it doesn't keep going? She sleeps with the guy that would upset Harry the most, right? Like she has to do that in a sense to destroy what they have. If that's what she wants to do, right? That she has to, if she's going to blow it all up, that's kind of how she has to blow it all up. The first time I saw I this film, I did not recognize that Lel guy when he came to burn their boat. I was like, what's this guy's problem? <laughs> just some rowdy yeah, kids just burned their boat. <laughs> just like, what, the, what a vandal. jerk. Like, what yeah. are you doing? Yeah. I think I have it in my notes. Like, what's this guy's deal? <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, you know, it, it, I mean, I'm not saying, I'm not saying I uh, would make the same choice or that it's a good choice to make. I'm just saying I, from a yeah, narrative it's more understandable. Like, yeah. It's just like, she has to do the thing that would upset him the most so that there's no chance that they try to reconcile. Yeah. And people right? can be self-destructive that way. You know, even if you're mm-hmm. not doing it consciously, you're just kind of looking for something that'll poke it just enough so that somebody can make the final decision for you. Well, and right, Godard exactly. suggests that it isn't necessarily a conscious decision on her part that she she kind of sees herself slipping into it. I don't necessarily agree, but that that really great shot there again that that he brings up where she's looking Phenomenal. down the camera and making that decision. You know, which way am I going to go here? Is filled with ambiguity, filled with um, just so much uh, that puts the. If it weren't for that shot, I think the film would be so much weaker. Yeah, and it point that's another thing that really points to where Bergman would go from there. And people definitely talk about the stare, rightfully so, but I think it's just as important that they drop out the light from behind her. Well, so yeah, it's, it's the lighting, the way her. her face just kind of emerges from this blackness at the end of the shot. It's just, that's incredibly powerful. It's, yeah, it's not just the eyes in the camera, it's the way that the light shifts around her that is like No, and how, and how manufactured it yeah. is, right? Like how... Right. how out of out of touch because the rest of the movie is sort of almost in a neorealist film style in a way right like it's all very very unaffected it, you know it's beautiful there's the shots when they're in the boat but i mean like that moment is so different than the rest of the film and and it and it speaks of 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 bergman's and gunnar fisher's and then and, and harriet anderson who was i think following direction and you know she speaks pretty memorably about her feelings going into that scene because you know as a young you know, actress, she was just told you'd never look into the camera. Now she's being told not just look into it, but hold that, you know, lock your gaze. Mm-hmm. And that's, <laughs> that's pretty powerful. But, but for Bergman and Fisher to sort of say, yeah, let's, let's do this. Let's really go there. Um, is just really remarkable because, it, you know, Bergman was not really anywhere close to the international breakthrough. I mean, that, that kind of came with a little bit more with smiles of a summer night. This one was more of a film that was discovered afterwards i think scott you had made a tweet about some of these shots in a film that really didn't expect to have this international audience you want to talk about yeah that i was bit? just gonna yeah. bring that up in fact uh, i yeah, tweeted sure. out a couple of days ago just in watching it again i was as always overwhelmed by the beauty of it and then just in reading about it you realize that this is just you know one in you know a few dozen productions from the Svensk film industry you know they had a fairly small budget to go out on this island by themselves. They didn't even shoot uh, with sound. I was surprised flaring on the island. It was all kind of post-synchronized, which is really remarkable. And you figure wow. out all okay. – when you think about all the kind of ambient noise of like her rushing through the forest, the rustling of the leaves, you know, the dialogue, the water, the wind, everything in that was post-synchronized. Uh, but yeah, these individual images are so striking. And it just kind of speaks to what I've been saying about Bergman, you know, just feeling that he needs to get this out of himself and well, yeah, a natural I, form of expression. And there's no expectation put on this film that it would look as gorgeous as it does, but there's so many iconographic shots. And Ark, I was actually listening to your Wild Strawberries episode uh, on your podcast the other day, and you mentioned Bergman's hmm. capacity for iconography. And it really stands yep. out here as well when he isn't an international figure and isn't, you know, the Ingmar Bergman great filmmaker guy. He's just a filmmaker and this stuff, just this point of view, this ability to find the perfect angle, the perfect way to pose the actors, everything he just recognizes when he has it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I really love about this because you're, you're seeing that this isn't, this is uh, intrinsic to who Bergman is as an artist. He's not thinking, well, I better come up with a few, you know, you know, trademark scenes, you know, to satisfy my audience. This is just 
how he how he sees his art how 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 he he has to express himself and i also love that this is kind of maybe there may be some predecessors but you know sort of the the ideal of bergman and his little troop shooting a film in the you know brief flurry of a, a swedish summer you know i mean they see that in seventh seal and the virgin spring and maybe a few other films where it's pretty clearly like okay we're going to get our show on the road we're going to find this beautiful kind of naturalistic location and we're going to make a movie over the course of you know five or six weeks and that's kind of what you see starting here in terms of you know bergman's kind of annual cycle that he was involved in you know doing his his theatrical stuff in the winter and his films in the summer uh, i just kind of love seeing this uh this this aspect of his of his art, artistry just kind of you know manifesting itself in this film well yeah and he went from you know gunner fisher to spend my nyquist and didn't drop a beat and i really think that you know did, was he incredibly lucky to get two phenomenal cinematographers after one another yes but i think it has a lot to do with him uh, you know, as well, and just the, the 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 way that he looked at the world, and the way he saw this stuff, and the way he set it up, and it's just, I mean, it, it becomes routine at some point to say that a Bergman film is beautiful, right? Yeah, and, he, <laughs> and he attracted talent. Obviously, people recognize, wow, this guy's got something special going on, and and so it yeah. was it was mutual. I mean, he he discerned the talent. People came to him and said, "Hey, I want to work with you," and that uh, you know created one of the greatest you know cinema, you know cinematic. Uh, you know, Ubers that that there are, you know. So yeah, we're just fortunate to be able to to see it all. So true. Uh, we haven't talked too much about the scandal about this release. I don't know how much more there is to say other than what's kind of publicly known <laughs> that it was released in the states under the title "Monica Story of a Bad Girl" in about an hour long form. Uh, by the looks of the kind of supplement on this disc about it, it kind of ends with that shot of her looking into the camera. Uh, as far as I could tell, there's no way to see this version of the film, unfortunately. Um, right. There's a few clips that they include, yeah. the, the Kroger Bab special. And that's, that's and, pretty fun. I mean, I was watching it with my dad, who's, you know, he, he kind of grew up in the 50s. And so he I don't think he ever saw this original film. But he could but he knew what a re- Swedish film meant. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. And, and just to, <laughs> just to relate to that kind of whole kind of lascivious way that uh, these films were portrayed and and uh you know and and just that 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 girl's look into the camera with such a bold you know staring right down the barrel there uh that that was just so haughty so out of line so undemure <laughs> you know that in itself was probably as about as scandalous as when you see her bare bottom skimpering over the walks or the rocks there you know just about I, maybe a, I, I a few shades shy i think unfortunately the only way to see that version at this point is to go back in time to that five-year period before yeah. janice uh, took over the rights <laughs> that was a funny little anecdote too just you know there's Wasn't it? janice yeah. there's, there's the criterion collection and it's uh, kind of pre-evolution there kind of you know you know wielding its muscle so to speak <laughs> Absolutely. Well, what, I mean, you know, from the era where they were sort of introducing America to art house films in the first place. And, right? and trying to give a, neat, a decent, you know, an expurgated, straightforward transfer. I, there was probably, it was probably an English dub. I mean, that's one of the things I, I, it was, I yeah, do it wish was there English was the dub. English dub version of the, you know, the Janus release. Because I think we get that in, uh, what, do we get that with the Seventh Seal? Seventh and Seal, other, yeah, and Rashomon. Yeah. Those are the two we've talked about. That have, I don't right. know if any other releases there's have English dubs, but I always like it when they do. I it's a curiosity, if, definitely. Yeah, I wonder if this did have an English dub with the full cut of it or just with that shorter Story of a Bad Girl cut. Yeah, not sure. I don't know. Uh, but this also created a bit of a scandal in Sweden, it seemed like. Uh, there's rumors that one of the board members of Svensk Film Industry resigned over their making it, uh, which is huh. interesting. And it did get slightly censored by the Swedish uh, board. There are a couple scenes Bergman talks about of some more hardcore uh, sexual engagement. Um but I don't, I don't think anything quite tops uh, this quote I found from a Los Angeles judge at the time who said, Monica appeals to potential sex murderers. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's probably true. It, well, that may be. <laughs> that's a really not all Bergman fans uh, kind of <laughs> movement waiting to happen. Oh, my goodness. It's it's amazing. Uh, but yeah. it's No, go ahead. It is. I will say, uh, from today's perspective even, it's still a fairly daring film. But for 1953, I imagine it sort of melted faces and minds just the the uh the level of, of of scandalousness to the to the you know portrayal of young sexuality and and nudity and 
all these different things. It's pretty, it's, it's, I mean, I would not call this a shocking film in 2016, but it is when you think about the context of when it was made, it's pretty shocking. Yeah. There's something about these films that always kind of retains their, their shock value. And there's something still kind of just, you can feel the context of it in these kind of films. Exactly. And yeah. You can exactly. still feel what audiences must've felt at the time, even though by contrast, sure, we've seen a lot quote unquote worse. <laughs> right. uh, I, I really like this edition too that Criterion put out. Uh, I think they do a really good job of making the Bergman releases really personal, and that uh, documentary they include on it, uh, images from the playground, is pretty great. Oh yeah, every all the, the the supplements are wonderful on this one. I haven't had a chance to go through them all yet, but that's encouraging. Yeah, I highly recommend it. That and the interview with Harry Anderson, I think, is really the tops. Yeah, but anytime you get those home food, those home videos of Bergman's are so great. Well, I, I I especially do appreciate the video or the interview with Harriet Anderson, but it's just because it's it you know it's just amazing to see how this woman has has aged so gracefully and just the you know the the the, the deep affection she has for Ingmar Bergman and and just the recounting of her career. I mean, she you know she really does feel very fortunate that she was discovered by you know, a great visionary artist who really tapped into her and, and, you know, you know, she talks about how she was just kind of a, you know, cute tits and ass performer up until he saw something in her and, and, um, and allowed her to become just a really, you know, I mean, in her own way, uh, an immortal of, of, of cinema. I mean, she's, she's, you know, she's not a Bardot. She's not a, even a BB Anderson in terms of her, her looks and her beauty, but, but just the, the power of her, you know, personality and, and the characters that she was able to depict, uh, just all bring out all different aspects of her personality you know, over the next decade or, or so, uh, it's just, you know, quite a remarkable body of work. And, uh, yeah, I, I mean, you know, he served her well. They certainly had some personal history, and and of course, he, you know, Bergman could not remain faithful, and then he moved on to other women. But she doesn't really seem to hold that against him. I think she just recognizes, you know, she fell into the orbit of a, a pretty uh, exceptional human being, and uh, you know, I'm sure there was some sadness and some hurt and all of that as well. But I don't know, just just her perspective and just her ability to just tell this story and to you know, to tell it in, in a recent memory is, is, is quite a remarkable little supplement uh, to, to have on this disc. By the way, just to that point, I know I said earlier that I prefer B.B. Anderson, but I will say that I don't think she would have been right for this film. Uh, <laughs> I think the film would have suffered immensely if she was playing Monica instead of Harry Anderson. Well, yeah. Uh, Harry Anderson. For what it, oh, go ahead, Scott. Oh, just for anything else you could possibly say about Bergman, uh, he did cast very well. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, and he he was smart enough to bring Harriet Anderson back for a role that that uh, you know could almost be if um, if Monica and Harry hadn't broken up when he gets to through a glass darkly, um, yeah. which is just so powerful. I mean, we're talking about how how kind of shocking she is in this film and how she lets herself go um, to that extreme. She she certainly does it again in through a glass darkly, which is just uh, so disturbing and powerful and um you know again you can see some thematic similarities now that i'm thinking about it like that uh, she's just she's tremendous and she she she's someone who can portray this stuff without that kind of vanity and then we get to cries and whispers where boy she just you know there's just no vanity there she she's yeah. she's she just she looks she looks like death and, and she, she does such a good job portraying that she, uh, boy, he, he did know how to cast and he knew how to, which roles were great for, for Harriet. And it had to be these that are kind of, uh, very, very emotionally raw and, um, physically raw as well. Well, there's that quote too, from her on that images from the playground documentary where she talks about Bergman sending her the script for, through glass darkly and she's like it's it's a great scripting mar but I, I don't think i can play it and he's like bullshit and she's like well okay <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of the end of that and uh I forgot I, about that that's yeah great. i'll have to cap the any discussion of through glass darkly here because i could easily get carried on for another hour with that <laughs> but I, I will save that as a topic for another day i we will definitely talk about that film at some point because that's one of my absolute favorite ingmar bergman films period and that's i think harriet anderson's best work and i i can't say anything else or else i'll get carried away um so i'll turn it over to you guys for any 
any final thoughts and any things we didn't get to? Uh, Arik, any, any concerns we didn't cover? I don't think so. I think we, we did a pretty good job on this one. It's, uh, I think, well worth watching, but I will say again that you may need to watch it. It, it might not be a first watch and get it kind of film. It's uh, definitely one that took me more than a single viewing to sort of tap into what was special about it, but it, I'm very glad I did. It was well worth it. David? Yeah, I, I'll pretty much echo that. I mean, I, I might think of something new later tonight, <laughs> tomorrow, or, or on the revisit. <laughs> it always happens, right? <laughs> but but you know, the, the, this is a this is a nice you know ninety plus minute film. You, you definitely can watch it twice in a couple of days or three days, whatever. And and really, you know, once you kind of get past, okay, what happens? Who does what? Then just kind of go back and re-explore how these uh, characters get into their predicament and just. Just, just these beautiful. I mean, th- that 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 summer sequence there. I I did see. I think maybe somebody on IMDb or whatever kind of drew a comparison to Wes Anderson's Moonrise Kingdom. Obviously, it goes in reverse. I mean, Moonrise Kingdom. If it had an allusion to uh, Summer with Monica, I, mean, I think there you could make the case there that whole kind of youthful romantic getaway. Of course, you know, with with Moonrise, it's a much more of a children's film and uh, and uh, you know. It, it's it's a, a more of a postmodern type of film as well, but there is that that timeless appeal of just that almost that fantasy or that that dream, if you will, of getting away from it all, just kind of chucking off all the you know the the yoke of civilization and conventional expectations and responsibility and doing the right thing and say you know what I'm just going to find this person that I find beautiful and and sexy and lovely and we're just going to go have a time of it and let the world go away. Uh, a, a film like this for people who are maybe a little bit past that point of realizing the fantasy, uh, it, it taps into those emotions. And I think uh, Summer with Monica really does have a place in the, you know, in the essential category of Ingmar Bergman films. And again, yeah, you can you can develop the tears and you can say, you know, there are sublime, supreme masterworks of all time cinema. Yeah, man, maybe this isn't quite up there because, you know, there's a I mean, there are little shortcuts perhaps that that Bergman takes or there's you know the the way that character you know that that one menacing character just sort of conveniently appears and reappears but you know this is overall a very a very accomplished work and one that fits right up there with uh, those landmarks uh, those milestones of Ingmar Bergman's career so if you really want to understand where the man came from where he went what he finally did uh, somewhere with Monica is as is, is essential as anything else that he made. Oh, no. My point with the, the whole tier thing was not to denigrate this film at all. It was to point out that even something as good as this is along the lines of Bergman. You know, it's just like there are such great lengths to which you, you went that he yeah. can make, you know, something like this, which in any other filmmaker's hands would be one of their best films. And this is like nowhere even close, which is crazy. Yeah, we're <laughs> up in the Himalayas here, I guess, is one way of putting yeah. it. Yeah, you know, exactly. <laughs> Uh, Trevor, anything we didn't get to? Um, well, just two quick little things. I, yeah. Dave, David brought up uh, Moonrise Kingdom, and I just had a couple of uh, other Criterion films that this, you know, I think fit thematically kind of nicely and go different directions with it. Um, one of the films is A Room with a View, uh, which, you mm. know, kind of has uh, the Helena Bonham Carter's character getting hemmed in and, and tempted to go with this really nice and stable uh, Daniel Day-Lewis um, <laughs> uh, weirdo. And um, I, I love it because that film in, in some ways is similar about the, like I brought up the dress earlier and this whole idea of, of they need a room with a view, this this view of the outside world. And, you know, there's the part where she goes and opens the window and it just lights up the whole room. And then there's, there's the part where all the men strip all their clothes off and go um, scampering around the, the pond and and i think that the themes are all very nicely there and then the other one that i thought of is the umbrellas of Cherbourg, which I, I know i brought that up in summer interlude i could probably relate most things to it but um but i, I love in that film when Catherine Deneuve's character is confronted with the obligation to choose stability and to to kind of forsake this this young love and passion because it's so uncertain and when she herself stares at the at the camera uh, as she's um, putting on her wedding veil and, you know, this face that just looks at you and says, what would you do? You know, look at me. 
this is this is where I am and this is my decision and and you, you can't judge me for that and so just um you know kind of a a couple of films that that explore these these this period of uh you know having an open world before you and making a very significant decision that may you know definitely starts to shut down paths and you know which path is going to be the one that you can kind of land on that'll get you where you want to go and that that's always fraught with um with uh potential problems and pitfalls and uh you know just but anyway two of my other favorite films and um so i wanted to just quickly tie it into that because uh, i think they go so nicely with um with summer with monica but um but they don't match summer with monica in it's just uh kind of uh, earthy uh primal passion that terry anderson brings i I'll just echo what David said that this is this is a tremendous uh, work of art, and I guess I'm echoing what all of you guys have said because it it is powerful. It's definitely definitely worthwhile. It's it's not an early Bergman curiosity, you know. I don't think any of the films we're talking about over the summer um, period are, but um, you know, I think a lot of people come to him and kind of think that anything either pre either pre smiles of a summer night but but I think a lot of people are it's even anything pre the seventh seal is considered kind of out there and you know early apprentice work and it's just it's just not the case he's he's doing some great stuff uh, even though he's yet to fully master his abilities he's he's just uh he's just leagues ahead yeah, I know some people who are big fans of Bergman who haven't touched anything pre Seventh Seal, and I'm like, you don't even know how how good it gets. <laughs> whole half of his career almost. <laughs> yeah, no, there's so many films in there, but it's also like this whole other dimension to him that you wouldn't even guess. I think I guess from his later work. Yep. Um, well, thanks, guys. Uh, I took more notes for this than usual and referred to them less than usual, and we still went longer than usual. So no. <laughs> I think it's been a very a very good episode. I can't thank you guys enough for joining me. Oh no! I'm, I'm I eager it. to get the next one going. I'm I'm looking forward to my one of my favorites, Ava Dahlbeck. <laughs> oh, you know, yeah, I'm very excited. <laughs> and this gave me very, excuse very to finally excited. buy that Blu-ray, so I'm excited to check it out. Now. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so that next film will be Smiles of a Summer Night. That'll be coming in August, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm especially excited to rewatch that and finish off our great summer with Bergman. So thanks again, guys, for joining me. Thanks to any listeners out there for listening, and uh, we'll see you. In later in the summer. Bye.